This sermon, simple, serious, and hopeful, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, May 16th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. We'll open up your Bibles to the book of James. We are preaching through James from beginning to end, and this morning we begin chapter 4. We're going to limit ourselves to the first three verses of James 4. But as you're turning, I just want to say this week, um, I, I, just, I was able to pause and thank God that this passage in so many ways is in us as a local church. As I was preparing this sermon, I, I just thought, no, this really is not a, a corrective message. This is in large part really a message that is a reminder because from the inception of this church, thank you to Tim and Kathy Lambros and Scott and Teresa McLeod who, who have been here since the beginning, 21 years, 22 years I think, right Tim? Uh, this has been instilled into our church. If you're around here long enough, this passage that we're gonna spend the next few minutes talking about, you'll hear it from the pulpit repeatedly. You, you, you'll, you'll hear it in community groups and small group discussions. Uh, if you come and receive counseling, you're going to hear James 4, 1 through 3. If you are just fellowshipping with other people in this church, there will be times when, when the truth of this text enters into your conversation. And so I, I was able to celebrate God's grace of how he has really knit this into our hearts and given us not only an understanding of what's here, but a passion to honor our Savior by practicing. Not just being a hearer of this passage, but being a doer of this passage as well. Now that said, we haven't arrived, have we? No one has arrived, and so there is always room to grow. But as we begin, I wanted you to just know that, that your pastors believe there is abundant grace in this area. Um, so will you stand with me? And I'm gonna pray before we read because though this has been something that has characterized us as a church, I, my hope is that we can read this passage and hear this sermon as if it was for the first time, freshly, uh, where the Lord grips our hearts with this truth. Uh, in a way that we might not have expected as we came in. So let's pray first. Lord, thank you for your work in your people. Thank you for your work in the people of this church, particularly in the way that James outlines for us in these verses this morning. Your grace in this area of having a Godward perspective of earthly conflicts, Lord, it is abundant. We have benefited much from this truth, and I pray that, that you continue that work even this morning. For those whom this may be new, I hope it will, it will reshape their paradigms. For those who've heard this, this uh, sermon or this, this passage preached more than once, I pray it will land on their hearts as if for the first time for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, stay standing. I know normally we, let's read together. 
I tricked you. <laughs> James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You may be seated. You know, as a way to readily remember Scripture for the purpose of personally applying them to my life, as well as encouraging others, I like to distill a passage down to memorable handles that that capture the primary point. Sometimes I create those on my own. Uh, Most of the time I get them from really smart guys. (laughs) I've heard a sermon, I've read a book. um, But that helps me recall uh, the passage and its intent and the purpose and meaning of it and and how it it should be applied in in a far better way. So let me give you some examples. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I think dead and alive. I was dead in my sin like the rest of mankind under the wrath of God, but God who is rich in mercy made me alive in Christ. I think of passages like Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Randy Alcorn helped me see this passage through the lens of stupid and smart. There's a stupid way to invest your money. Uh, We're invested in earthly treasures, and there's a smart way to invest your money. Invest it in heavenly treasures. Or how about Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17? Identify and repent. Identify and repent. That's what Colossians uh, 1 through 4 says. Identify with Christ. And then it says, put off sin and put on righteousness, which is just another way to say repent. How about 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16? Particularly as a pastor, preach and practice. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word of God. And then he says, watch your life carefully. Or we should all be familiar with this one, James 1, 19 through 25. Hear and do. Hear and do. And then there's our text today. Two words, really three words. Simple and serious. Simple and serious. You know, we, I, I think it's safe to say that we, we all, we've all asked ourselves a question, why can't I get along with that person? Why, why am I always fighting with my spouse? Why, why are we always at odds with each other? It's a very relevant question. Maybe you've asked it this week of some relationship in your life. Well, that's the question that James asked today. But he just doesn't ask it. He also answers it. And his wisdom from above can be captured in two words, simple and serious. The problem of relational conflict 
is simpler than you think, and it's more serious than you think. That's where we're going this morning, and we're going to get there in three ways uh, by, through the text. One, we're going to look at a pointed question by James, and he's going to turn around and give a piercing answer to that question, and then he's going to give a powerful invitation as he wraps this section up. So let's look at our first point this morning, a pointed question James asked. Notice in verse 1 again, he, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The question that James poses here really reminds us of the relational strife that these churches were experiencing uh, as, they, as they formed. Uh, James doesn't say anything about it in our verses here, but we have a feel of what's been going on in these, in these forming congregations, don't we? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw that there was conflict between the rich and the poor, sinful partiality based on superficial distinctions. In chapter 3, verse 1, we, we, we saw that there was rivalry, rivalry between grasping wannabe teachers as these new congregations, no longer under the daily teaching and care of James, they were dispersed and, and they were looking for new teachers. Chapter 3, verse 9, we saw that people were blessing the Lord on Sunday and cursing one another during the week. And of course, last week, in chapter 3, verse 14, there was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and now, James, speaking of wisdom, particularly in the context of relationships, James asks a very pointed question. Why? What, what causes the quarreling and conflicts among you? Uh, among you meaning with one another. Among you meaning in the church. Why? What's the cause? What's going on? Now, to feel the force of James' question, uh, the word translated quarrels, it also could be translated war. Wars or, if you will, battles. Why are you battling each other? Why are you at war with one another is what James is saying. And the imagery of his, of, of his language here really does kind of create in the original language a bloody battlefield, if you will. Only instead of guns and knives, they're fighting with attitudes and words. J. Motier helps us understand the force of James' language when he says, in verse 1, when he says, James chooses the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels, animosities and bad feelings among Christians. Not because there is no other way of saying it, because there is no other way of expressing the horror of it. He is seeing the relationships of the church through the eyes of God. James begins chapter 4 with this language of fighting and quarreling, warring and battling, because he wants us to grasp how serious, in the eyes of God, relational conflict is. And this is important for us, isn't it? 
Because if you're like me, it's easy to uh, it's easy to minimize. I think we, we can all become very comfortable with minimizing our relational conflicts with, with euphemistic phrases that either justify our behavior or make us feel a little bit better about ourselves, right? I mean, how often do you say, well, you know, our personalities just clash. That's all it is. We just have clashing personalities. Or maybe you've said, you know what? Here's the bottom line. We're just wired a little differently. No big deal. We just go at it because God's wired us a little bit differently. We just don't get along. Yeah, we have some issues. Or, you know what? We're just oil and water. We don't mix. We don't mix. Euphemistic phrases that have the effect of minimizing and perhaps even justifying what God sees as a serious issue in his church. See, God doesn't see our quarreling and fighting this way. In fact, as we'll see next week, the thinking that I just mentioned earlier through those euphemistic phrases, that kind of thinking that minimizes conflict isn't the wisdom from above that we talked about last week. It's worldliness. And in the, in the following verses, James is going to call it worldliness. He says, you have become worldly. You are thinking like the world. This quarreling and this fighting, it doesn't reflect the Christ-exalting peace that James pointed you to. In verse 18, it reflects the, the proud ambition and the arrogant jealousy that leads to disorder and sinfulness in the house of God that we were warned about last week in chapter 3, verse 16. And so it's easy to kind of move quickly from this, in some ways, a rhetorical question, what causes quarrels and conflicts among you, and answer that and say, well, yeah, Tim and I just, we don't always agree on things. But God, who moved on James in his spirit to write this letter, he moved on James to use the jarring language of war to describe their relational conflicts. And that language is meant to jar us as well. It's meant to be a means of grace that guards our hearts and imparts wisdom for our relationships. So that's the question. What's the cause? Why all the quarreling and fighting. A pointed question that James then answers with an answer that frankly is quite piercing. Notice what he says again in verse 1, what causes quarrels and conf- what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Not, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people that just don't get along because their personalities are different. Not, yeah, I understand because that, your upbringing, you, you, you had a, a violent father and not, that person caused me. That's not what James says. He says, here's the cause. 
You. You. What causes the quarrels and conflicts that you're involved in? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Nothing about the other person. Nothing about the upbringing. Nothing about the circumstance. No details about the the situation. You. Derek, you. You know, I thought this week, I wonder how that went over. (laughs) As as the leader is reading this letter. I mean, this is true, isn't it? You want to hit someone's pride button? Tell them they're the problem. Especially in our culture. And we know this to be true, right? In our culture, we're blaming others, blaming the past events, blaming systems is a virtue, and personal accountability is anathema. You blame, you, you, you raise up personal, personal accountability in this culture, and you may get canceled. Well, that's what James does here. I think James would have been canceled today. He says, I'll tell you the cause of your quarrels and conflicts. It's you. It's not the other person. It's not the situation. It's not the history behind the situation. No, Derek, you are the problem. Does that poke? It poked me this week, every day. (laughs) It's meant to poke. It's meant to jar us. Now, I do think it's important to realize we do need to recognize that there are situations when one's heart is right before the Lord, and yet the relationship is troubled. That's possible. You, You can actually choose not to fight. You can choose not to participate, to participate in the conflict. It's possible to choose peace instead of fighting. And Paul advises us to do just that in Romans 12, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. You see what he's saying there? It's possible for us to check out on the quarreling part, say, you know, I'm I'm just not going to do this. I'm going to pursue peace. We can do that. So when, when, when it is possible that where there's conflict, there could be one party to blame. But typically, because we tend to choose to engage in the conflict, right? We're not very disciplined when it comes to sitting out a good quarrel or a good fight. When we choose to engage in quarrel and fighting, James says the problem is not here. It's in here. The cause of the external conflict is an, is an internal issue. And James reveals this three ways. Look at the end of verse one. He says, your passions are at war within you. That's what's going on. And then he says, you desire and do not have. So you, strong word, murder. And then he says, You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and fight. 
Did, did you notice the progression of language that James uses to explain the cause of their quarrels and fights? The quarreling and the fighting of verse 1, before James is done, turns to what? War and murder. War, war reminds us that there's a, there's a bigger fight going on than our verbal sparring. Murder certainly reminds us how far unchecked conflict can go in a fallen world, but I think primarily that word is meant to, again, startle the original readers and impress upon them the seriousness of their relational conflicts. Like Jesus taught in 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 the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry with your brother, you what? You murder him in your heart. And so James' point here is clear with these three statements of what's going on inside of us. Quarreling and fighting reveals the presence of sin, and sin is serious. It's not about being wired differently. It's not about not being compatible. It's about sinful cravings, James says. Your passions within you. Your, 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 your pleasures, those things that you desire, that, that's his point there. It's about sinful cravings, James says. It's about wanting, if you're writing anything down, write this down. It's about wanting something more than I want God. My passions at war within me that express themselves in my relationships through anger and quarreling and fighting That happens because there's something that I want more than I want God. It's about wanting something so bad, even something good, that I'm willing to sin against God to get it and or I'm willing to sin against God when I don't get it. Did you see that in the text? That's what what James says. You want something, but you don't get it. You, you, You covet something, but you don't obtain it. So you quarrel and fight. It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty simple. James makes it really simple for us. Listen to what David Powelson says about this. Dave Powelson is uh, CCF, Tim, right? I think still a CCF. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. God rest his soul. He's with the Savior. No more quarreling conflict for him. <laughs> Praise God. Well, when you see him one day, he says this, our desires deceive us because they present themselves as so plausible. Natural affections become warped and monstrous and so blind us. Who wouldn't want good health, financial comfort, a loving spouse, good kids, success on the job, kind parents, tasty food, a life without traffic jams, control over circumstances? Yet, cravings for these things, good things, Yet cravings for these things lead to every sort of evil. 
The things people desire are delightful as blessings received from God, but terrible as rulers. They make good, they make good goods, but bad gods. That, 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 that his, his point is, and this is actually where, where I learned this, but his point is, that's how you know when a good desire has become a sinful craving. When it has become your God. And James says, you want to know how something's become your God? You sin against your brother and sister and quarreling and fighting. You sin against God and how you speak to and your attitude. You know you want it too bad at that point. You want it more than God. He goes on to say, one of the joys of biblical ministry comes when you are able to turn on the lights in another person's dark room. People usually don't see their desires as lusts. Souls are cured as the ignorant and self-deceived are disturbed by the light of God's analytic gaze and then comforted by the love that sheds substitutionary blood to purchase the inexpressible gift. I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, self-righteousness who really understand and reckon with their motives. James 4.1.3 teaches that cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife or my husband. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them, cravings for affections, attention, power, vindication, control, comfort, a hassle-free life can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. See what he's saying? I love that. Our sinful cravings underlie our relational conflicts. And when we see that, there's a pathway to peace in our relationships. Only when we see that, only when we stop pointing the finger at each other, whether it's husband or wife, uh, parent and child, co-workers, neighbors, fellow church members, understanding the cause is not out here. But I want something, even something good, so bad, that I'm willing to sin against you and, more importantly, my God to get it. We can't say, James won't let us say, what causes quarrels and conflicts among you? Donna, Tim. No, James says the problem is right here, Derek. You want something, and when you don't get it, you go to war. You go to war with your wife. You go to war with your fellow pastor. You go to war with your children. You go to war with your community group leader. You go to war with the person sitting behind you and in front of you. You go to war demanding something from others. 
It's that simple. And it's that serious. Because ultimately, every time I go to war with you, I'm going to war with God. It's that simple. It's that serious. Listen, here's some application. The next time you find yourself on the doorstep of quarreling and fighting, probably in a couple hours, (laughs) stop. Stop. And ask yourself this. What am I craving right now? What do I want so bad that I am willing to sin against my wife, that I'm willing to sin against this person and my Savior? That question, if by the grace of God in the heat of the moment, the Spirit leads you to that, that question will stop you dead in your tracks and point you back to the text last week, bringing you wisdom from above so that you can be peaceable, so that you can be gentle, so that you will be open to reason in the midst of a conflict, so that you will bring glory to the Lord and be a means of grace to the person who you are trying to work out an issue with. The next time you find yourself as a peacemaker between two people quarreling, ask both of them. I understand what they did, but can I ask you this? What are you wanting out of this situation right now? What are you craving right now? What is it that that you are trying to obtain so badly that you are willing to sin against your brother and more importantly, sin against your Savior? Boy, could you imagine if we began with our own hearts and then as peacemakers We began there, sending people to their corners to do exactly what James instructs us to. Get your eyes off that person for a moment. What's going on in here? What is going on in here? What grace, what mercy, what wisdom from above, whether it is husband and wife, parent and child, whatever the, whatever the relationship is, I don't know how James could better equip us to deal with relational conflict in a way that allows us to thrive in, in gospel-demonstrated, peace-producing, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-led, God-exalting relationships. And the conflicts are coming. Do you know why? Because we're sinners. <laughs> Not because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner. They're coming. They'll be here today. Maybe they're lingering right now. Ask yourself, what am I craving in this moment? That's a piercing answer. The first time that I had this text taught to me, was probably David Pallison, and it was paradigm exploding for me. It changed everything. 
changed the way we raised our kids. There's numerous slogans that when our kids are growing up, they just, they heard constantly. We'd be watching, you know, we'd be watching a Disney movie. Okay, where's the gospel? Connect kids, drove them nuts. Can we just watch the movie, Dad? We know Christ is in there somewhere. That's okay. Every time one of our kids went out to, with a friend, we, we always walked him through the door and said, be wise, be humble, have fun. To the point when we walked him to the door, I would say, you know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, Dad. Be wise, be humble, have fun. And then there's this one. What's going on in your heart, son? What are you craving right now? Thank you, James. Wisdom from above. Now, he, he does something else. He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just say, the problem is you, Derek. But he gives a powerful invitation. It might not seem like an invitation at first, but it is. Notice what he says in the end of verse 2. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you wrongly, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, it's easy to read that and go, well, that, that's kind of a change in gears. But it's not. It's very tied. It's very tied to the first two verses. James is a brilliant pastor. And what he just did here is that he connects the quarreling and fighting with each other to a deficiency in their relationship with God. That's what he's doing here. You do not have because you do not ask. You want something But instead of looking to the Lord, prayer, instead of looking to the Lord, instead of communing with God, you look to others demandingly. And when they can't deliver, you get frustrated and you go to war with them. That's what James is saying here. In essence, James is saying, listen, quit fighting and start praying. You're looking to one another to get something. I want respect from my wife. And if she's not going to give me what I think I deserve, I am going to war with her. My wife wants acceptance from me. And when she feels like she's not getting that, then she goes to war with me. Instead of finding her ultimate acceptance in her living Savior, who's made her acceptable eternally in the eyes of a holy God. We can keep going with examples. But James says, you've drifted. You've gotten horizontal. And they had drifted. We'll see that next week. James James basically calls them spiritual adulterers. He says, you become worldly in your thinking. 
And that's being reflected in your relationships with one another. Remember, that's how the world lives with each other. They were fighting instead of praying. I love the way John Calvin says, he says, they sought to be happy, but not through God. That's Calvin's take. They weren't praying, and their lack of prayer and the presence of fighting revealed that they wanted to be happy, just not through God, through one another. And we will always, we will always disappoint one another, won't we? So James says in this, he is saying, get back to God. This is an invitation to get back to God. James is saying, start praying more and fighting less. That's good counsel. That's good counsel for them. It's good counsel from us. Whether it's peace in the home, it's blessing on a ministry, it's, it's comfort in an uncomfortable situation, we are prone to look out here for things that only God can provide. And so what that means is that our quarreling and our fighting is proof. It's evidence of something. It's proof that, that we've lost sight of the abundant grace and generous nature of God, the, the great God and Father, the Father of lights who pours all good gifts down from above without changing. We lose sight that, that he calls us to come to him for all that we need. Our quarreling and fighting is proof that we've drifted from believing that communion with God truly satisfies our deepest longing. Communion with God satisfies our souls like nothing that we can gain in this life. Our quarreling and fighting is proof that we have forgotten that if God has given us Christ, Romans 8.32, if God has given us Christ, his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things we need? Listen, James is invite God is inviting us to prayer. He's inviting us to prayer. And, and listen, prayer, prayer reflects a Godward perspective, which is what these guys were missing. They were living horizontally. But prayer reflects a Godward perspective that transforms our earthly perspectives. Even our relationships. You're in a tough relationship? Stop fighting with them. Start praying for them. And watch how your perspective about that person will change. Watch how suddenly you will be willing to humble yourself and take some blows for the sake of peace. Prayer is a Godward perspective that transforms even our earthly relationships. So if you find yourself fighting a lot, can I humbly submit? You're probably not praying enough. 
<laughs> no, we don't pray our way into peaceful relationships. That's not the point. But there is a cause and effect, right? Scripture, there is a cause and effect. If you find yourself constantly quarreling with someone or others, it may be that you need to be praying more and talking less. That's always my thing. <laughs> Even praying for that specific person. Now listen, James here says, he, he, he says, the invitation to pray, right? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, now he knows, I think, that we can get sideways with that. <laughs> So he wants to make sure we understand that God is not a vending machine, right? Notice how he ends in verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there may be, James is a brilliant pastor. He probably understood that there's probably plenty that are going to be hearing this letter read, and they would say, well, Pastor James, I do pray. Thank you for that warning, but I do pray but I'm still not receiving. James says, because you pray with the wrong heart. You pray with the wrong motive. You may be praying, but even your prayers are horizontally defined. Now, James is not saying it's wrong to pray. Lord, would you bless my family with that house. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't overcorrect. Don't read into James what he's not saying. I've talked to people who say, you, it is absolutely wrong to pray for yourself in God's good. No, there's an invitation to pray. You ask and you do not receive. We'll start there. God says, no, come, ask me. But remember when you come to me, it's about me. <laughs> it's not about you. When you come to me, I'm not a vending machine that gives you all of the things that you've ever wanted in this life. I hear your prayers and I answer them according to my wisdom for you and my purposes for you. See, their prayers were worldly. They prayed according to their Desires and pleasures, not the purposes and the will of God. Their prayers were not communing with God. Their prayers were using God. God wasn't at the center of their passions and pleasures. They were. They were. And so in a sense, through James here, God gives us a powerful invitation. He invites us to say no to the sinful cravings that destroy our relationships and look up to God for our needs, for our good. And through through change, isn't God merciful? Listen, this, this letter is written to the church these people, or most of them, have been saved by the grace of God. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They have the promises of God, and they cannot be taken away from them. Their names are written in the book of life. God has 
forever committed himself and the blood of his son Jesus Christ to them. One day, most of these people will be in heaven, and yet they can get off, just like us. And God doesn't turn them away. He doesn't say, Derek, you blew it. No. In a sense, he says, get your eyes off of each other. Come to me. Ask me. Look to me to provide your deepest needs. Commune with me. Only I know what you need and only I can provide it. And I am good. I am generous. I am all powerful. I can do what the Apostle Paul wrote more than you can ask or imagine. I can give you. Stop living in the fray. Stop living. Remember the, the Linus, was it Linus character with this? Or maybe it wasn't Linus. Who was the little kid who never took a bath? Pigpen. Do you remember? That's a great picture here. Stop living in with Pigpen. <laughs> Cloud of dust everywhere he goes, right? Don't demand from others what only I can give. Why these quarrels and fights among you? It's more simple than you think. It's more serious than you think. And I want to add a third word. It's not an S. I tried really hard. I even got my theosaurus out. It's more simple than you think. It's more serious than you think. And it's more hopeful than you think. This passage, this passage is about our hearts and conflict and how to live at peace with one another. But this is not merely a system to be followed. God doesn't give us a system. He gives us a savior. This is not about following a formula. It's about yielding our hearts to the one who has saved us by grace and made us his so that we can live for his glory in a dark world. And it reminds us. It reminds us how desperate we are because I know what's going to happen with me. The conflict is going to come sometime today, I'm sure. At least it's going to present the temptation. And in that moment, if I'm going to change, in that moment, it's not about first and foremost what I do. It's about what I preach to myself. See, this text reminds us 
Yeah, we, we experience a lot of little conflicts. But there's one big conflict that every human being finds themselves in. The moment they're conceived in the womb. They are at odds with God. That is the greatest conflict known to mankind. They are an enemy of God. But God gave us Jesus, who lived and died and lives today to bring peace to the greatest conflict we have ever had, being at enmity with God, being under his wrath. But in Christ, your sins are erased. In Christ, your account before God has been filled with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that never falls short of the glory of God. In Christ, our hearts are indwelt by the empowering Holy Spirit. And all that to say that in Christ, God is for you. He is for you. He is in you. He is with you. Even in that moment, in the temptation to quarrel and fight, to bite back with words and express the attitudes of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, even in that moment, he is with you and he invites you to look up to him, to cry out to him. And so while... While relational conflict is serious, and though it is simple, we we are hopeless in our own strength. But the situation is very hopeful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is great hope for your relationships. Because the gospel is powerful enough to open your eyes, to change our hearts, and to reconcile our relationships, to redeem them for our good, for one another's good, for the testimony of this church, and above all things, for the glory of God. James 4, 1 through 3. Simple serious and hopeful.